I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 8. I know it's been a few weeks since I've preached in the evening, so in case you're confused by your bulletin, I am not Chase Smith. I know we look a lot alike, but I am not. I am Pastor Neil. This evening we are back to Judges chapter 8. Since it's a long chunk of scripture. Instead of just reading it all at the very beginning, I will read Judges 8 throughout the sermon as we get to various points. So as we begin, let us call upon the Lord in prayer and ask for his spirit to be with us, to guard and to guide us. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we get to gather again to hear your word. And even though we are usually far fewer in the evening than we are in the morning, we know that we still have your word and your spirit, and that is all we need. So I pray that as we hear your word once again, that you will illuminate to us, that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, our hearts to believe and receive your good word. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the potential challenges of growing older is that your memory doesn't always quite work like it used to. One of the preachers at this week's General Assembly of the PCA were Pastor Ryan and one of our ruling elders and I were this past week. One of the, the preachers at the evening service, who was an, an older gentleman, said he really gets excited now whenever he remembers anything, whether it's finding his keys or why he walked into a room or the name of someone he hasn't seen for a while. For as he's gotten older, remembering feels in and of itself like a pretty great accomplishment. But age is not the only obstacle we have to remembering. Sin is an even greater barrier. For in biblical terms, remembering and forgetting are not merely about the ability to call something to mind. In covenantal terms, to remember God, his promises, and his commands is to believe them, to obey them. To forget, on the other hand, is to disbelieve and disobey. Essentially, to forget God and his covenant is to forsake God and his covenant. It's to live as if God is not God as he revealed himself to be, as if his promises are untrue or unattainable, as if his judgments are just idle threats, and as if his commands are merely suggestions for you to take or leave. So because of sin, we are prone to this kind of spiritual forgetfulness, even when we are young and our minds are relatively healthy. We naturally, because of sin, forget that God is the supreme ruler of the universe, that he is good and wise, that he is loving and gracious, that salvation is by his power alone, and that glory, therefore, exclusively belongs to him. So as 
God is repeating his commands to Israel through Moses as they get ready to enter into Canaan, the promised land. God repeatedly exhorts Israel through Moses to take care lest you forget. He says this in Deuteronomy 4, in 6, in several other places, but perhaps the clearest and most extensive version of this command is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 20. I'll just read a few verses from that section. Moses says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then in your, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the hand, land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you jump down a few verses, he says again, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. God blesses his people. God fills his people. God delivers his people. And we often think, well, it's, it's our suffering, it's our loss that's our greatest enemy. But the Bible warns us your plenty could be quite dangerous too. Even God's deliverance, you might in your sinful pride, turn into a danger and twist to your own harm. For our sinful pride is so great that it will seek every opportunity it can to lift us up and bring God down. Pride, therefore, would turn deliverance into destruction. It would turn fullness into faithlessness. It would turn blessing from God into boasting in man. Which is why God warns us, take care lest you forget. Pride is, is really the fruit of this kind of forgetting, forgetting that God is God. God is the ruler. God is the one who saves. God is the only one who deserves glory. If you've been with me as I've been preaching through Judges, you've seen in the last couple of chapters that this was God's concern with Gideon and Israel. You may recall that God's greatest concern when an army of originally 32,000 Israelites got ready to fight an army of at least 135,000 Midianites was not, this army is too small. His concern was, this army is too big. And why was God concerned that 32,000 Israelites was too many to fight against 135,000 Midianites? Well, the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God was concerned of their pride. And so God graciously protects Gideon and Israel by slowly reducing that army from 32,000 all the way down to 300. 
And then God defeated the Midianites without Israel even raising a sword. He just blew some trumpets, broke some jars, and held up some torches. And in this way, God worked a supernatural salvation, but Israel didn't take care. And they forgot. We will read a little bit later, verse 34, which says, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And that's speaking of the time after Gideon has already died. But this forgetting begins as soon as God delivers Israel from Midian. So chapter 8 is really a description of this slow descent into sinful forgetfulness, which took place not only in the heart of Israel, but in the very heart of Gideon. Now, I, I freely admit, some of Gideon's actions in chapter 8 are ambiguous. Not all commentators and scholars agree whether he's acting in a right way or a wrong way. But I'm inclined to believe that m at least most of what is recorded in chapter 8 is to be viewed in a negative light. I'll try to point out details of why I think this along the way. But I want you to observe up front that after God speaks to Gideon and he tells him to go to the Midianite camp so that Gideon will hear an encouraging word and be strengthened to go fight the Midianites after God's miraculous deliverance, we don't hear from the Lord anymore. God is very prevalent in chapters 6 and the first half of 7. He's talking to Gideon all the time, telling Gideon exactly what to do. Well, later in chapter 7 and throughout chapter 8, God is silent. It's as if the author is trying to indicate at this point, Gideon is just kind of doing what was right in his own eyes. So we'll see is the problem throughout Judges. So Gideon and Israel quickly moved from faithfulness to forgetfulness. They did not take care as Moses commanded. Gideon had been clothed with the Spirit of the Lord, but he did not, as Paul commands us, keep putting off that old man and putting on the new. He didn't keep, as Peter commands, clothing himself with humility. Because if we are not continually careful, pride will just keep regrowing in our hearts. So in Judges 8, we are going to see what happens when we forget. And what happens is that pride begins to grow again in various ways. I'm going to show you Four forms of pride that grow when you forget the Lord and that salvation belongs to him. And suggest how you can take care to fight against this forgetfulness with each point. So number one, we see that forgetting grows the pride of competition. Look with me at verses one through three. It says, then the men of Ephraim said to him, that's to Gideon, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebiezer? 
God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. The first two forms of pride that we see grow in the Israelites. And we first see this with the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim is apparently a tribe that thought very highly of themselves. Later, when we get to chapter 12, we're going to see this same song and dance with Ephraim. After all, the great Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. They were one of the largest tribes. Historically, Ephraim was one of Joseph's two sons. He was the younger son, with Manasseh being the older. But as it was with Jacob and Esau, when Jacob blesses Joseph's sons, he reverses the order and he puts Ephraim above Manasseh. Joseph protests, but Jacob says Ephraim is going to be greater than Manasseh and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And Ephraim's descendants apparently took this blessing to heart, but not in the best way. Because they are upset that Gideon, when he called a few tribes to gather to fight the Midianites, which you see back in chapter 6, he didn't call anybody from Ephraim. And they are offended, thinking, Gideon, you were robbing us of glory. He did call them after God delivered them from Midian, because when the surviving Midianites ran away, as we saw at the end of chapter 7, he calls out Ephraim so they can help capture two of the princes or generals, Zeb and Oreb, and they do, but this is not enough for them, and they are upset. So Gideon flatters them. And essentially, he says, the least that you have done, Ephraim, is far greater than the best that I've ever accomplished. And since all Ephraim really cared about was having their pride puffed up, this satisfies them. But you'll notice that Gideon doesn't respond to Ephraim, say, Ephraim, what are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't do anything. I... I, I literally just smashed a jar, drew a, blew a trumpet, lifted up a torch, and I just watched as the Midianites all killed themselves. That, that's all I did. You're, you're talking about which one of us gets greater glory? God did everything. The glory's his. But God doesn't appear to be part of the equation at all. Gideon simply compares his work to their work, and he puffs them up with flattery. And here is a lesson for us. When we forget that all glory belongs to God alone, we start thinking that we deserve a little bit of it, and then we start competing with one another for the greatest portion. When we think glory is a free-for-all, then we will compete and strive with one another. Ephraim wants glory because they've forgotten it belongs to the Lord. But you also see here that this forgetting begins to chisel the first obvious cracks in Israel's unity, which becomes more apparent throughout the book of Judges. And 
The first several chapters of Judges, Israel is constantly being oppressed by other nations. By the last four chapters in Judges, they're not fighting with other nations anymore. They're just fighting themselves. In fact, it's gotten so bad, one tribe is almost entirely wiped out. They are to be one people of God. But now tribe is competing with tribe for glory. The sheep are on the precipice of devouring themselves. You remember Paul's warning to the Galatians. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The same is true for us today. When the church forgets who the Lord and Savior of the church is, she will start to compete for glory. See, churches competing with other churches. I, I want to have the biggest church. I want people to be saved, yes, but I want to be the one who saves them so everyone thinks we're a really great church. Oh, what a great preacher. Everyone, they go sit in a pew one time, they're converted. Oh, wow, that's so wonderful. And then even within a local body, we start to distrust one another, eye one another a little bit more suspiciously. Yes, churches divide over doctrinal errors or ethical misconduct. Sometimes churches divide simply because they forgot to whom the glory belongs. And they want a little bit for themselves. So Paul reminds the Corinthians that God chose the nothings and nobodies of the world to show that no human being may boast before the Lord. And Paul commands, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So how do you fight against this form of pride? Well, you need to remind yourself each day, as Jesus says in John 15, that you can do nothing apart from him. If you've ever done anything worthwhile, useful, that was because of Christ and not you. And I think one of the most important daily habits to fight against this form of pride is the act of thanksgiving. Give thanks. Because thanksgiving is the acknowledgement that everything you have, you have received. In humble thanksgiving, you are locking the door against the pride of competition. Because when we are glorifying and giving thanks to God, we, we can't be busy competing for his glory. So thank God for your salvation every day, which you did not deserve. And thank God at every moment when you recognize a blessing, something good that has happened. Just stop for five seconds and say Thank you. Your kids are actually getting along with one another. Just pause. Thank you, Lord. It's a sunny day. Thank you, Lord. Every good experience, every happy moment, pause and say, thank you, Lord. Because the more you are saying, thank you, Lord, the less you will be saying, you know, my own hand has saved me. Forgetting grows the pride of competition. Number two, forgetting grows the pride of self-preservation. We continue on in verses four through nine. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. 
So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel's answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. As Gideon and his 300 men pursue the fleeing Midianites, they are exhausted. So first he turns to the men of Sukkoth, asking them to be a source of rest and strength to help their brothers out. But Sukkoth isn't willing to help. Why? Because they will not take Gideon at his word that he has defeated the enemy. Until they have tangible evidence that all of the Midianites and these two kings are actually already defeated, they are not going to risk their own safety and well-being. Because what if Gideon's lying, or what if he fails to defeat them? We'll see, there's still 15,000 Midianites, and there's still only 300 men with Gideon. So what if he loses? Well, then Zeba and Zalmanah are going to turn around, and anyone who helped Gideon is going to be punished. However, Gideon says, all right, well, when I do come back successful, I'm going to beat you. And then a similar scenario occurs with the people of Penuel, and Gideon promises even worse. He says, this tower that you think is going to protect you, I'm going to tear it down. The men of Sukkoth and Penuel were not willing to sacrificially serve their fellow Israelites because they prioritized their personal safety and well-being above all else. They did not side with the Lord's deliverer because they were afraid what that might cost them. Now, the inclination towards self-preservation is not in and of itself bad. God designed us with an inclination toward self-preservation. In fact, God appeals in his gospel promises to our desire to save ourselves. It is right to desire to save yourself. However, sin can twist this inclination into a selfish pride that prioritizes your well-being and safety above everything else and prioritizes the wrong kind of salvation. We become so concerned with our own physical and material well-being and safety that we are unwilling to risk anything to serve others and follow the Lord. When that happens, we know that self-preservation has now become a form of selfish pride, and we have forgotten the Lord and his salvation. So what do we do to fight against this rotten fruit of forgetfulness? Well, first, we need to remember Christ's warnings and commands. For Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? When we remember these words, we will start to realign our inclination toward self-preservation. And remember, there, there's far more than just seeking physical well-being. And second, we need to remember God's command to love our neighbor as ourself and labor to foster that kind of love. And one of the ways, I think, to foster brotherly love is to intentionally seek ways to sacrificially serve others. I believe our church does this well, and I just encourage us to do it more and more. Be hospitable. Be generous. Pray for others even more than you pray for yourself. Serve in ways that make you feel uncomfortable. Seek out needs in order to fulfill them. And don't just wait around for someone to tell you they need help. For the more we are proactive in these ways, the more our heart conforms to Christ. And we learn to sacrificially love and serve as he has sacrificed and served for us. For remember, Jesus said, he didn't come to be served, he came to serve. And so we need to adopt this gospel mindset and go outside our comfort zone. We see that forgetting grows the pride of competition, and we see that forgetting grows this pride of self-preservation. Number three, we see that forgetting grows the pride of an unforgiving heart. Verses 10 through 21. Now Ziba and Zulmana were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmona fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmona, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmona, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmona already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmanna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmanna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks 
of their camels. So Gideon resumes his pursuit of these two kings, and they are described as kings, as opposed to Oreb and Zeb, who were just princes or generals. Now these two kings still have 15,000 men, which far outnumbers Gideon's 300, yet they are once again thrown into a panic, and Gideon captures the kings. Now the, in, the, the next in, events involving Gideon's treatment of Sukkoth and Penuel and of Zeba and Zulmana, as I mentioned before, have divided commentators on whether Gideon is behaving as he should. The other just describes what happened. He doesn't give us his opinion, so I admit it's ambiguous, just as some of the actions of the other judges have been ambiguous. And as I said before, I, I don't think we are to view this in a positive light. And the main reason for that is the Lord's apparent silence in all of this. And so as time goes on and we see Gideon, who was cowering in fear in the beginning, now he's become very brave, but he's also become harsh and ruthless. For after capturing the two kings, Gideon captures a man from Sukkoth. He makes him write down every name of those officials who mocked him. And then he does beat them as he is promised. And the, the Hebrew is not quite as nice as he taught them a lesson. I won't tell you what it really says, but it's not pleasant. After this, he breaks down the Tower of Penuel, as he said he would do. But he also kills all the men of the city. These are his fellow Israelites. And this is because they offended him. Sukkoth mocked him and wouldn't help him, so he beat them. He does even worse to Penuel. And I want you to notice something important here. Why is Gideon so angry with them? He's angry because they had the audacity to doubt him. They would not take him at his word. And they said, we, we need tangible sign and proof that what you say is true. Does that sound familiar? Who have we heard of before who wouldn't take somebody at their word and said, you know what, I'm going to need some, some physical evidence. Gideon. At the beginning of the story, the Lord comes to Gideon and he says, I am giving the Midianites into your hands. And Gideon says, yeah, I'm going to need more than your word if I'm going to go and do that. So he makes the, the Lord, or he asks the Lord to, to do a miracle with some food. It gets taken up in a fire, and Gideon says, yeah, I'm still going to need a little bit more proof. And so not once, but twice, he puts out a test for the Lord with a fleece. And we see in chapter 7, Gideon's still not quite sure, and so the Lord sends him to the camp of the Midianites so he can hear about the supernatural dream that one of the soldiers had and the interpretation that this meant Gideon was going to be victorious. He needed four proofs that God was telling him the truth. And how did the Lord respond to Gideon each time? When Gideon deserved to have the Lord strike him down dead every time he doubted his word, the Lord said, okay, Gideon, I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to be gracious to you, and I'll give you a little bit of proof. Not once, not twice, four times. 
And as soon as someone doubts Gideon's word, Gideon says, I'm going to beat you. And then I'm going to kill you. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant that Jesus tells. Ring any bells. And then when Gideon speaks to Ziba and Zalmanah, another interesting bit of information comes out. I don't necessarily think it was wrong for Gideon to pursue and even execute these kings. That was probably right. But it appears as if Gideon is no longer interested in obedience to the Lord, but he just has his own agenda. For we learn now that these kings previously had killed his biological brothers, and he wants payback. Gideon even tries to get his young son to kill the kings. And the author goes out of the way to point out how young his son is, which makes me think that probably wasn't the right thing for him to ask. And, and then when these kings mock him like Sukkoth did, Gideon gets really mad and he kills him. Gideon has become a ruthless, harsh, vindictive, and unforgiving man. He has forgotten God's grace and mercy to him when he doubted and was afraid. He's forgotten that God had supernaturally delivered him in Israel, and now he acts as if Sukkoth's and Penuel's greatest offense was against him and not God. And Ziba's and Zalma's dishonor were against him and not God. How quickly do we forget God's patience and mercy and grace. How often do we forget that he has saved us from all our sin, which is far greater than we will ever realize. And he did it not because of anything we did to deserve it, but just because he chose to do it out of love. When we forget, we become ruthless, harsh, vindictive, and unforgiving. We start to think it's all about us, that our honor and glory are paramount. We seek to execute justice as we see fit. If somebody offends me, insults me, I'm going to make sure they pay. I'm going to cut them off. I'm not talking to them anymore. So how do we guard against this proud manifestation of forgetfulness? Well, first, we remember that God's gospel is all of grace. And that every single one of us who are justified before God are justified by faith in Christ alone. See, the minute we start letting our own works creep into the equation of salvation, we will soon think of ourselves as our own deliverers. So if you haven't already, let me encourage you. You memorize Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, and you repeat it whenever you start feeling like you had something to do with your own salvation and that others ought to be giving you more honor and glory than they are. In those moments, remind yourself, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And second, just as I've encouraged you to make daily thanksgiving part of your regular disciplines, make daily confession of sin a regular discipline in your life. 
because confession confronts you with your own sin, but it also keeps you face to face with God's forgiveness. See, confession is not how you earn God's grace and forgiveness. It's how you keep abiding in them. And don't only confess sin generally, saying, Lord, I I confess I'm an angry person. Confess particular sins particularly, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Confess, Lord, I'm sorry, I got angry and lashed out in anger. Again, to my child, here, forgive me, Lord. This will keep you humble. And this will flood your soul with God's grace and forgiveness, and therefore this will help you overflow with that same grace and forgiveness. So keep seeking and experiencing God's forgiveness through confession that you may become forgiving. Fourth and final form of pride that grows from forgetting is the pride of self-glorification. Here's verse 22 through the end of chapter 8. It says, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Some of the actions in the previous verses may have been ambiguous, but these verses are not ambiguous. For when Gideon makes an ephod, the author tells us, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So in Gideon's life, we see he stumbled out of the gate. He ran well for a little bit there in the middle, but then he did not finish well. And the first hint that something's not quite right with Gideon has actually come back in chapter 7. For do you remember after Gideon gains a lot of confidence from the dream and interpretation that he overhears, he goes back and he talks to his 300 men, he tells them what they're going to do, and then he commands them to shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Why did he add himself? Well, that was pretty typical for Canaanite peoples. Their battle cries would often be for their God and for their king. 
I wonder if Gideon added himself because of the Midianites interpretation of the dream. When the soldier interpreted the dream and he said, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. And so this word that was meant to kill Gideon's fear may also have given new life to his pride. It was a message from God to comfort him, but he seemed to take it as a message to crown him. For Gideon starts to act like he's the king. Now, at first, it, it sounds really good when the Israelites come to him and they say, rule over us. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. The Lord will rule over you. But then what does he immediately do? He first doesn't correct them when they say, you rule over us because you saved us from the hand of Midian. Here was another great opportunity to say, guys, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. And then he asks for a tribute, which is given to kings. He's already taken some of the kingly ornaments from the Midianite kings, along with their pendants and royal robes, which suggests Gideon's already preparing to live like a king before he's ever asked to rule. He also makes an ephod with the intention not only to become the royal center of Israel, but the religious center, because it's set up in his city. The ephod may have been like what you read Aaron the high priest wearing back in Exodus. It actually may just be referring to a graven image that he was now going to set up, maybe even reconstructing the altar to Baal that he had torn down in chapter 6. Regardless, this episode is clearly intended to recall the episode when Aaron made the golden calf as Moses was up on the mountain getting God's law, and Aaron takes all of the, the earrings and the, the spoil from Egypt, and he melts it down, and he makes a golden calf and leads the people in idolatry. We see now that Israel is moving backward under Gideon's leadership. And then Gideon, we see, has 70 sons because he has many wives and, and concubines. And the concubine who bore his son Abimelech may, may have even been a Canaanite. And what does Abimelech mean? Remember, Gideon has said, no, I'm not going to rule over you. But then he has a son, and he, Gideon names him Abimelech, which means my father is king. I don't think Gideon was really refusing kingship. He spoke well, but he didn't act well. Gideon began simply by adding himself into the equation along with God in the realm of glory. But when you add yourself to the realm of glory, it's just a matter of time before you subtract God. And we see here that pride is not only a danger to ourselves, it's a danger to others. For when we lift up ourselves in our own hearts, soon we're going to want others to praise us. And as we draw attention to ourselves, we are directing attention away from the only source of salvation. And so we see that Gideon not only had a snare for his own life, but for his family and for all of Israel. And so we must... Not only acknowledge that salvation is of Christ, we must acknowledge that lordship belongs to Christ. We do not merely profess that Christ is king, we must act as if Christ is king through obedience. For when we are submitting to another will, we are at the same time subduing our own. And so we come to the life, to the end of the life of Gideon. 
And it's taught us many lessons over these chapters that we've spent several weeks considering. But it's probably also left you with some questions. Maybe the biggest question you're left with was, was Gideon actually even a true believer? I was having a conversation with someone earlier today after the morning service, and they were asking me about Solomon and Gideon and others. Were they true believers? Well, Hebrews 11 acknowledges that Gideon at least one point acted in faith. God clearly uses him to deliver Israel from Midian. The author even suggests Israel is wrong to just forget about Gideon after he's done so much good for Israel. And yet it's hard to ignore the end of Gideon's story. And so my definitive answer to the question, was Gideon a true believer, is I don't know. I don't know if he was a true believer. I hope he was. But as I've thought about it, it has reminded me that we cannot judge the salvation of another or even our own salvation based on our best moment or based on our worst moment. You see, your worst moment doesn't damn you and your best moment doesn't save you. Your salvation has nothing to do with your highs and lows. The Bible shows us unbelievers can at times perform great acts. The Bible also shows us that true believers can suffer great falls and even poor finishes. But whether or not Gideon was a true believer isn't the point of the text. The point, I believe, and I close with this, is that we desperately need a faithful finisher. The judges in this book are usually a a mixed bag. There is a lot of ambiguity with these characters. God is using all kinds of strange instruments and weapons to accomplish his, his purposes. But the point has been that God remains faithful even when all his people, even the judges, become unfaithful. But as I keep studying this book, I keep coming back to the same conclusion. And that conclusion is that I am so thankful that we have a deliverer, we have a savior, we have a judge, we have a king who is not at all ambiguous. God doesn't leave us wondering if he was pleased with the savior he sent, Jesus Christ. On more than one occasion, the father explicitly says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And even when his son dies on the cross, the father raises him from the dead to once again say, I am pleased with him. Christian, Jesus is not ambiguous. You don't have to wonder, is he faithful? Can I trust him? Can I follow and imitate him? The answer is always yes. So for those of you who perhaps are overly discouraged with your worst moments and think, if I was a Christian, I couldn't have acted that way. Remember, that's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is, do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone? And for those of you who may think, you know what, I'm doing pretty well, and you start listing off all your great accomplishments, I would just remind you too, that's not what saves you. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And you can trust that Jesus Christ finished well. He began well. He ran well. He finished well. As Paul says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He obeyed to the very end, unlike Gideon. 
And so from Gideon, we are reminded, as the psalmist says, not to put our trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. But as we remember that, then at the same time, we praise the Lord that we have a far greater deliverer who is the son of God, who was a faithful finisher and a gracious king. And we give all glory to him. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... We thank you that in your wisdom, you preserved the record of Gideon's life, of his acts of faith and his acts of failure. And in this way, we know that you remind us not to look and trust in ourselves, but to look to and trust in Christ alone. Thank you for a faithful Savior who lived well, who died well, and who rose again, that we may be forgiven and cleansed of all our sins by faith alone. All we have to do is believe and receive the salvation that you have supernaturally worked apart from us. And so we give you thanks. May you be praised with every knee bowing and tongue proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.